Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 9 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 18, 1 to 9. There is an expression that I'm sure we're all familiar with. Familiarity breeds contempt. If we're not familiar with the expression, we're familiar with the sentiment. Familiarity breeds contempt. Basic meaning is that the better you get to know someone, the more evident their warts become, the more evident your warts become to them, and the more you begin to rub each other in the wrong way. Friction is created in the relationship, the more familiar you grow with someone. Uh, getting married tends to have this effect on someone. So I've been told. Uh, never has it affected me like that, of course, but, uh, uh, <laughs> but getting married can sometimes cause that friction in the, in, in the environment. The first time you leave your towel on the floor and your wife says, hey, wh- wh- why did you leave the towel on the floor? And you, and you, and you go, uh, I always leave, that's, that's the holding place for my towel. I always leave my towel there on the floor. Well, I don't like it there on the floor. I don't really care what you like. It's my towel, right? <laughs> Marriage relationship. Other family relationships can cause the same kind of friction. The more you get to know someone, the more you know all the things that make them tick, the more those kinds of things bug you. The reality is that if you don't learn as a family very early on, even as a husband and wife, if you don't learn how to live together, how to die to one another, how to give up some of the places where you like to keep the towel or or the things that you like to have things, the ways you like to have things organized, if you don't learn how to live together very early on, then familiarity will breed contempt in the relationship. In our passage this morning, the disciples are seeking to establish their place in the kingdom of Jesus. They've been hearing about this kingdom for some time, and they're seeking to establish their place in Christ's kingdom. And Jesus uses this question from the disciples as an opportunity to not only explain where their place actually is in the kingdom, but how... Christ's people will actually function together, both together as a community and individually as followers of Christ in the covenant community. So let's take a look at our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 9. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And, he, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
For it is better for you to enter life crippled and lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we so desperately need you here in this text. Give us help by your Spirit to understand the words that are on the page and give us hearts ready to obey it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. From very early on in our study in the book of Matthew, we've been looking at the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has been presenting us the kingdom of heaven. Matthew has been presenting us the kingdom of heaven. And we've been looking at it since the very early pages of uh, the book of Matthew. And in chapter 5, Jesus introduced us to what a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looked like. He said there in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are poor in spirit. They mourn over their own sin. They're meek. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. They are often persecuted for righteousness' sake. They seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then over the last five weeks, we've been looking at what Jesus' ministry means for anyone that wants to be called a disciple. If you're going to be a disciple... We learn that the heart of discipleship is marked by self-denial, a willingness to die, and a belief in life to come. We saw that the aim of discipleship is to recognize Jesus' true worth and to follow Him by obeying His commands. We saw that the power of discipleship is not in self-confidence, but in faithful submission to God. We saw the result of discipleship is the bodily resurrection of the dead. And then last week we saw that that all of this brings with it a freedom in discipleship. Where you and I, if we're followers of Christ, we are free as His disciples. We are free from all regulation in order to submit to all for the sake of the gospel. But the time has come for self-reflection. This morning, we'll introduce us to a, a series that I'll be starting in a few weeks when I return from Israel, a series on the church. And the reason is because Matthew 18 is going to lay out for us, Jesus is going to be talking a great deal about being in the kingdom of heaven and what it is like to be a part of his body, the church, that he will mention in verse 17. He's going to be talking about what it is to be a disciple and talking about how it is to live together as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. What our life together as a body of Christ is to look like. What concerns we should have. What concerns we should not have. And how we should operate together as a body. In the series that I'll be starting in a few weeks, we're going to be talking about what the church is and how it's described in Scripture. Its purpose, its function, 
what it's supposed to look like and function like. In addition to that, we'll be talking about what it's become over the years, particularly in America. And I'll be urging us as a body to return to the most central purposes of the church, regardless of what it costs us. The question of self-reflection that's required before going into and understanding what it means to function together as a church, the, the central question you have to wrestle with is, am I truly a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Am I truly a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Am I a member of the body of Christ? It's the same question. Am I a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Am I a member of the body of Christ? That's not the same thing as asking, am I a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church or some other church? It's not the same question as that. Are you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Are you a member of the body of Christ? Every person to a man in this room and woman should look themselves in the mirror and ask that question, am I a member of the body of Christ? Am I a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? This question cannot be answered by going to another church, joining this church or that church, worshiping here or worshiping there or somewhere else. doesn't matter where you go to church. The question still pertains to you. Are you truly a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? In our text this morning, I want to make two observations that hope to help us answer that question or help you ask that question, or perhaps even just give you some information in order to answer that question for yourself. The first observation I want us to see is that kingdom citizens live in childlike dependence on Christ. Kingdom citizens live in childlike dependence on Christ. Look at what he says in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples posed this question to Jesus. Uh, this story appears to us in Matthew. It also appears to us in Mark and Luke. And in Mark, uh, it includes the disciples uh, uh, debating this question and discussing this question amongst themselves as they are walking on the way. And when Jesus finds out what he's taught, what they're talking about, he asks them, "What were you talking about?" And they go completely silence because they're ashamed of what they've been talking about amongst themselves, and finally they come out with the question. And in Luke, we find out that it's not only the discussion, but it's also an argument amongst the disciples about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They are debating amongst themselves, and the logic of their heart is twisted and flawed, and Luke tells us Jesus knew the logic of their heart, and he asked them the question because he knows their hearts are twisted in the wrong direction. I want you to imagine for just a moment that you're a simple fisherman and this man Jesus calls you out of nowhere off the shore of the Sea of Galilee to follow him 
And for whatever reason, you leave your net, you leave your father and mother, and you follow him. And for three years, you get a front row seat to his ministry. You might feel a little bit of temptation to think that you factor in prominently in the plans of God. It might cross your mind a time or two that, hey, I'm a pretty big deal, I think, in all of this. I mean, the disciples are going around casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and a few of them have actually seen Jesus transfigured on the mountain, and Elijah and Moses, someone who died hundreds, people who died hundreds of years before they ever were alive, appear before them. That's pretty awesome. In the next chapter, Jesus is going to tell them that these disciples are going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The disciples are an important feature in Jesus' ministry, and it appears that they know it. Which makes what Jesus is about to tell them all the more shocking. The question finally makes its way to Jesus in probably the worst possible way it could have been asked. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Which, which, one of us, which one of us is the most awesome? Jesus takes this child and he puts him in the midst of them. And you can imagine the feeling in the pits of the disciples' stomachs as they know without a doubt this is not going to end well. Anytime Jesus uses an object lesson, lesson you're at fault, all right? So he brings this child in the midst of them, and he says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Consider these words for just a moment. The current path that you are on puts you on the outs of the kingdom of heaven. The disciples, the 12 who have been with him, they've been following Jesus since the very beginning. And as I said, they've been casting out demons, they've been healing the sick, they've been preaching the kingdom. And they're going to be on the outside? How is that possible? Well, what does it mean then to turn and become like children? You're going to hear lots of sermons. Lots of people extol the virtues of a so-called childlike faith, right? You probably heard that phrase before. You just have to have faith like a child. You just have to have a childlike faith, they'll say. They say that what Jesus is, is saying here is that you've, you've just got to believe. You've just got to blindly trust and the thinking goes, I think, that if you tell a kid something is true, in general, they want to believe you. And so telling you to have a childlike faith is basically the same as telling you as a disciple just to believe in spite of the questions that you have in your mind. You may have even heard childlike faith as a reason to reject things like theology the deeper study of Scripture, all those complex ideas and, and, and deep things that you have studied. You need to just have a childlike faith as a means of rejecting some sort of academic understanding 
of Scripture. That is a really bad reading of this passage. A very bad reading of this passage. That's a childish faith, not a childlike state that Jesus is commanding them to be in. Jesus does not tell the disciples to have faith like a child. We're never commanded in Scripture to have faith like a child. He tells them, in fact, to turn and become like children. We don't even know that the child he uses as an example actually believes in Jesus at all. He could have just grabbed the head of a kid on the marketplace town square and pulled him in front of him and said, you got to come, you got to turn and become like children. But if that's not enough, Jesus actually interprets what he means for us in verse four. He says, humble yourself like this child. He's not using this child as a symbol of gullibility. He's not using this child as a symbol of ignorance or even of simplicity of faith. In fact, the child's faith, like I said, isn't even talked about at all. He's using this child as a picture of humility. Why? Well, you have to remove yourself from a 21st century mindset where children are idolized. And you have to take yourself back to a first century mindset where they're not. In the Western world, in the 21st century, we want to give our children a, a storybook childhood. We want to film their reaction as they see Mickey Mouse for the first time at Disney World. Or their reaction when you tell them you're going to Disney World, right? They open the present, you film their reaction, post it all over Facebook. They're so amazed, like we see in the commercials. We want to give them a storybook childhood. Because in our minds, in the 21st century, the child is the picture of innocence and purity, which I'm quite sure is a lie concocted by people who have never had kids. Because <laughs> it doesn't take long to realize that is not a picture of innocence and purity. Take yourself out of the 21st century mindset and put yourself in a 1st century mindset, or even a 1940s mindset, all right? Even not that far back. We know children are meant to be seen and not heard. Right? It's not that long ago that that was a saying. That was told of me a couple of times, I think, as a child. In the first century, children had absolutely no status in society whatsoever. Absolutely none. They didn't have the best clothing, they didn't have the best shoes. They didn't have any symbols of their parents' wealth like they do today. They were little more than property. I know that doesn't make us feel really comfortable now in the 21st century, but in the first century, they were little more than property. They certainly weren't welcomed into conversations with adults. They were entirely dependent on their parents for everything they would ever have, which is why the humility of this child is what Jesus urges the disciples to emulate. You cannot get more humble than a child in the first century. The child is 
humble because he has absolutely no bragging rights about anything. He's got no claim to anything. This is the exact same meaning, by the way, that Jesus gets to in chapter 5 when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There he uses the illustration of poverty, and here he uses the illustration of a child, but both are designed to get at the same central idea of being completely dependent on the Lord for everything. Now, though I've known this in my head, it became real to me in my heart when we had our oldest son, Grayson. He was born six weeks early, and which in today's medical terms is really not much uh, of anything, just means a stay in the hospital for the most part. He had stopped growing earlier than that, and really, uh, if the doctors hadn't caught it by really just a, a work of the Lord, both he and Andrea probably would have died in this process. And so he spent three, three weeks in the NICU. And Andrea and I drove home at night and had to sleep at home at night and then drive back up to the hospital in the wee hours of the morning uh, just so that we could hold him. And we could spend all hours uh, up to our time to go to sleep uh, next to his little, what amounted to basically an incubator. I remember to this day uh, kissing him on his cheek, and he was three pounds, 11 ounces, so he was just super tiny, where the, my top lip touched the corner of his eye, and my bottom lip touched the corner of his mouth. That's how tiny his cheek was. And I remember just sitting there holding him, all the wires coming off of him, uh, IVs coming out of his head or, or whatever vein they could find on his body, and it was then that I was reminded of dependence. It was then that I knew that in the circumstances we were in, if he hadn't had the medical care that he had either after the birth or even before it, he would never have made it out of the womb. Even after that, for a normal healthy babies, they're completely and totally dependent on you as their caretaker. But it was a few months after that that I started to realize the natural progression of life is to gain independence from your parents. I remember just a few months later getting him home from the hospital and he's, standing, he's sitting there in his room and he grabs onto his crib and he pulls up to stand up and as the, as the father of your firstborn child, you're behind them every step of the way wanting to catch them by the third, you're like, whatever. Uh, whatever happens, happens. It uh, doesn't matter. But behind the first one, you're like this. You know, you're waiting with bated breath to see what happens. And I'm there to catch him. And my hand brushes the side of his leg. And he does everything in his power to move away from me, to get away from me, uh, so that I cannot touch him or interfere with him in any way. How quickly the child moves from pick me up to put me down. They grow in independence from their parents. They begin to feel that sense of independence. And whether they realize it or not, they are still very dependent on you as their parents and their provider. Kids don't want you to prohibit them from crawling to the fireplace, but then if you were to just leave for a little while, they would realize pretty quickly their dependence on you as mom and dad. In the same way the disciples are walking along the road and they're discussing which of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They have seen glimpses of the power and majesty of Christ and yet based on how close they are to the Messiah and the privileges they have, they assume that they too will be exalted as he is exalted. 
And with one child, Jesus tells them, unless you realize that you have no status, you have no merit, there is nothing great about you that you would earn this position. And unless you realize that you are still totally and completely dependent on me for your source of life and well-being, you are not even getting in the kingdom of heaven. See, the Christian life is supposed to work the exact opposite of real life. In real life, we gradually grow in independence from our parents And in contrast, as we grow in faith, as we uncover more and more about Christ, as we learn more theology, as we sing more songs about Him, as we listen to more sermons, as we open Scripture more, what the Holy Spirit produces in us is more and more dependence on Him as our sole provider. So as we grow in understanding of who God is, our appetite for the things of God should also increase. Our desires to hear and understand the word should increase. Our desire for deep, rich prayer lives should increase. Our appetite for a Bible-saturated, prayer-saturated, singing-saturated worship service should also increase. Your desires to serve other people on your own volition and even anonymously should also increase. Brothers and sisters, the stakes couldn't be any higher. Jesus tells the disciples, either you humble yourselves to complete poverty of spirit, either you, have, either you admit that you have no claim to any throne or authority, either you humble yourself like this child, or you will find yourself on the outside of the kingdom of heaven looking in. No matter how many pulpits you've preached behind, how many deacon bodies you've served on, how many choirs you've sung in, how many Sunday school classes you've taught, or sermons you've listened to, if the posture of your heart is anything less than being completely enthralled with the fact that he has saved you, you are not in the kingdom of heaven. So you, individual, must consider your dependence on God as a foremost concern or you're not getting in the kingdom of heaven. But then Jesus turns to how your humility is displayed in the church community around you. In other words, your childlike humility that Jesus is calling us all to is not just between you and God. It's actually demonstrated in the relationships with others because, second point, kingdom citizens avoid sin and all of its causes. Kingdom citizens avoid sin and all of its causes. Look with me at verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. 
Remember, when Jesus says receives one such child, he's not talking about actual children. He's talking about disciples who follow him, who take on this childlike state of dependency on him, who understand their need for him. So then, what does it mean to receive a disciple this childlike disciple in Jesus' name. What does it mean to receive that one? It's because uh, they are. It's be, it's because they are Jesus' disciples. You're extending them hospitality. Now, what does it mean if you're going to extend someone physical hospitality? It means that you're going to serve them, you're going to preserve them, perhaps by giving them food, perhaps by giving them drink, or maybe even a place to sleep. But Jesus isn't that concerned right here with your physical service toward their physical needs. He does mention that earlier in the gospel. But here, it's more of the spiritual side of the service. How is it that you can be spiritually hospitable or welcoming to Jesus' disciples? It's encouragement. It's building them up by helping them pursue childlike humility in their service to Christ. It's loving them. If it is criticism, it's in the gentlest way so that for the sole purpose of building them up into more mature followers of Christ. The contrast he points out there in verse 6 is who causes one of these little ones to sin, that is, causes them to stumble. When he says causes them to sin, or when he says in verse 7, woe to the world for temptations, these are are stumbling blocks. They're, They're presented in front of the disciple that cause them to trip. Jesus is contrasting the building up, the receiving, the growth and maturity, the edification of the body that you're to give with instead placing stumbling blocks in front of their feet that cause them to trip. These stumbling blocks can come in a variety of of fashions. For some, it may be actual temptation to sin. Think of abusers or adulterers lure you into a trap. Pornographers. All kinds of people out there that lure disciples into traps. Or it could be something as simple as as unkind words. It could be something as simple as extreme forms of criticism, not meant to build up, but meant to tear down, meant to insult. If your receiving of these disciples is primarily a spiritual form of receiving, then encouraging, building them up, then in contrast in verse 6, finding ways of either tempting them means basically tearing them down. Any way of discouragement in their pursuit of Christ and their dependence on Him. The point is that your relationship to Jesus is not merely one-on-one. Your relationship to Jesus is not merely one-on-one. Your discipleship to Jesus includes a body of others, of those around you that he is forming into his church, which he mentions in verse 17 of this chapter. His point is, if you are living in your life in service to Christ, it is to be together with others doing the same. You are building one another up, not tearing one another down. 
So the community of believers looks like a group of people that are held together by their mutual spiritual poverty and that are encouraging one another toward love and following Christ. But I will tell you, it's far easier to be the critic. It's far easier to point out everyone else's weaknesses. It's far easier to see all the flaws in the way someone else serves, teaches, parents, sings, ministers, preaches, leads, or gives. The list goes on. It's far easier to play the role of critic than to find something encouraging to say to them. Not flattery, not compliments, not false presumption, but to genuinely build someone else up. It's far easier to play the critic. But I can promise you this. Criticism isn't a spiritual gift. God did not appoint any of you to be the critic. He didn't give any of us that role. As much as we would like to, you'll find that it's far too easy to do to be a spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts are hard to practice. It's far too easy to be the critic and the cynic. In fact, Jesus has actually pointed to the danger in harming one of his disciples. And basically his point is, by the time I'm finished with you, you would rather die in the worst possible way than to face what's coming. It's the second danger that he's actually pointed out. Not just missing heaven. That's part of it. Not just missing that, but punishment greater than being drowned in the depths of the sea, having a millstone tied around your neck. Woe, he says, to the person who puts stumbling blocks in front of his disciples. The person that places the stumbling block in front of the disciple is for sure culpable. And they're held accountable for that. But also the person who commits the sin is to blame and will also be held accountable. Jesus repeats in verse 8 something he got to in chapter 5 about lusting. He says in verse 8, and if your hand or your your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than, than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Obviously, Jesus is using hyperbole to communicate his point, but the point couldn't be clearer. The one that desires to follow Jesus cannot make peace with sin. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You and I are constantly facing one of two realities. We are either killing sin as we pray that God would give us help in delivering us from this, as we pray with the Spirit's help that we might identify the sin, as we confess these sins to the Lord, and by the Spirit's gift of repentance, we are allowed to turn away from it. This should call us as a Christian every day to to do this in our daily life. So we are either engaged in that battle or it is killing us. There's no in-between. 
how many will call themselves disciples of Christ and attend church every time the doors are open, but do so rarely take inventory of the sin in their own life. The church is a gathering of repenting people. And if you're here today and you're thinking, man, I do not take inventory of my life. I do think maybe it is true. I am on the outside of the kingdom of heaven looking in. The gift of repentance is offered to you. Confess your sins to him. Trust in Jesus Christ as your savior. Every last one of us are in that same boat. There's no one perfect in this room. Without Christ, we would all be dead in our trespasses and sins. Trust in Christ and repent of your sin now. But what does it look like to be a repenting people? Jonathan Lehman puts it like this. Repenting people typically are zealous about casting off their sin. That's what God's Spirit does inside of them. When this happens, one can expect to see a willingness to accept outside counsel, a willingness to inconvenience their schedules, a willingness to confess embarrassing things, a willingness to make financial sacrifices or lose friends or end relationships. That's what it looks like to be a repenting people. So then how could we summarize the church with what we've said here? What I've said here. The community of believers is a group of people that are held together by their mutual spiritual poverty and a hatred for sin, encouraging one another in love toward following Christ. Listen to me. Unless that DNA is built into every single member of the church, then familiarity will breed contempt. Unless that is the DNA of every single member of the body of Christ, every single member of Emmanuel Baptist Church, then familiarity with one another will breed contempt. We will desire more than anything to get away from one another because we see the warts and we hate them. I want you to see the situation that we're in together as a body, as a body of believers. This passage should humble us all because in it, we should be saying to ourselves, I can't do that. 100% of the time, I cannot do that. If you're calling me 100% of the time to cast off all forms of sin, to get rid of it, to wake up in the morning and have a zeal in my heart to kill sin or it be killing me, if you're telling me that I have to wake up and just right on the spot, I have to desire more than anything to kill sin in my life, I can't do that 100% of the time. 
If you're telling me that to be a part of the body of Christ, then I have to build one another up 100% of the time and I can't tear anybody down ever. I can't do that. If you're telling me that I have to be fully dependent 100% of my life on following Christ and fully dependent on on him, I, I can't do that. And you're absolutely right. None of us can. None of us can. The walk of faith in Christ is a long road that bends towards obedience. See, what happens is when I, when I stop depending on Christ, the people in the body are supposed to say, you're, you know, you're not depending on Christ. The spirit within me says, you know what? You're, you're, not, you're not depending on Christ here. This is the area. Come back in repentance. And again, for me individually and for us corporately as a group, it's a long road that bends towards obedience. And so I come back in repentance and faith. But then I, I tear someone down instead of building them up. And the body is there to say, that's tearing someone down. That's gossip and slander. The Holy Spirit pokes on my heart and says, that, that's it right there. That's, that's it. That's sin. Come back. See, what we're missing is that Christ did it. And then he gives to his church his spirit. And by his spirit is the only way that that long road bends towards obedience. Otherwise, bends towards chaos. It's the only way. So this passage should humble us all. Know that it's not me that's bending towards obedience. It's Christ's work in me that's bending me towards obedience. It's Christ's work in the body that's bending towards obedience. Now, I want you to picture a people that have covenanted together that by the Spirit's help, together as a body, we're going to be constantly blown away with what Christ has actually done for us. And the fact that outside of Christ, we have no right to the kingdom of heaven. We have no claim to even be here together as a group of people. And yet Jesus descended from heaven to take our sins on his back and there on the cross absorb the wrath of God for both you and me. I want you to imagine a people who are constantly blown away by the grace that we have received in salvation. How would we be able to hold grudges with one another if we realized the forgiveness that we have received on the cross? Where is their place for infighting in a church if we are we're just happy that he saved us? Imagine what life would look like together if we were more focused on building others up than pointing out all the flaws. A people who are humbled by their inclusion in God's family and are edifying one another. Can you imagine what kind of attraction that would be to the outside world? 
Then add to that a group of people who on top of all those things are killing the sin in their own life. A church where living together looks like humble people constantly encouraging one another because when you sin against me, guess what? You've got nothing on what I've done to Jesus. Taking sin seriously is a threat. It tempts us to run away from Christ, the one that saved us. That is a really compelling community to the outside world. Because in reality, it's not buildings, it's not signs, it's not the color of stripes in the parking lot that drive people away from the church, it's the business meetings. People bicker, fight with one another. It's the Sunday school classes. Can't stand to be around one another. It's the people that meet together and shake your hand and smile in your face and then go behind your back and talk about you. That's what drives people away. The community that we want to create in the church is totally antithetical to that. And I think what Jesus is saying here is if that's you and that's what you're bent on, you are outside the kingdom of heaven, not in, no matter how many churches you've been a member of. So then the call for us is very clear. Bury the conflict. Put it in the ground with whomever it is. Encourage members of the body. Go to them. Find them. Give them encouragement. And as you find that sin that so easily entangles you, don't hesitate to share it with your brothers and sisters that are around you that will help you shoulder the load. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray for us as a church that you would continue to conform us to your word. That we would look, that we would choose to look at the work you are doing in the hearts and minds of people in this very congregation. The disciples that you're raising up, the maturity that you're producing in the hearts and minds of people that are here, the sin that you're calling out, that you're using other members to call out, the holy and right confrontation that's being had toward the building up of a brother or sister in your name. Pray that those would be the things that we focus on. Those would be the things that we look at and those would be the things that we strive to as we seek all the more to become mature, devoted, and great worshipers of your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.